Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge engine failure, it appears, for Erica. The smoke funneling out of the back of the car. Stanfield drives by. It's our pre-NHRA New England Nationals show as we get ready for Epping, New Hampshire, Talk Chicago. And it's Trip Tatum for the first time in his career. 370 flat, 330 miles an hour. We got Tony Pedragon on this show as well as NHRA on Fox pit producer Todd Venny. Bobby Bodie's 074, and he blows the body off the car. Going through the finish line stripe, Bobby maintains control of the automobile. Inside stories, breaking news, and more right here. Number 16 is going to take out number one. He left on a, by a day and a half. Both Manson Hines bikes are out, and it is crazy town at Pro Stock Motorcycle. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. We are getting ready for Epping, New Hampshire, the NHRA New England Nationals, celebrating its 10th uh, visit, I guess, or 10 years running for the event. Obviously, we didn't go in 2020, but Epping, New Hampshire is my home racetrack, a place that means the world to me in terms of my career and life in the sport of drag racing, and certainly a fun homecoming weekend every year to see faces that I don't get to see near as much as I used to on a week-to-week basis when I worked at the racetrack doing everything from announcing or being a race director, a tech inspector, and anything else that needed to be done around the place. It is also a weekend that's going to revive maybe the feelings or the championship hopes of some racers that have been languishing the last couple of races, Matt Hagen being one of them. Back-to-back first-round losses for that team, but this is a guy who has won this race three times. Dickie Venables loves New England Dragway, and it is a great bit of timing for this team to be coming in after a couple of disappointing weekends to maybe lay down the law for the rest of the world. Tim Wilkerson and Clay Milliken come in as the latest winners on the tour. Milliken, if we look through his entire drag racing history, is 100% the winningest pro racer at New England Dragway um, in both sanctioning bodies. He has not won as an NHRA racer, but he absolutely dominated the place as an IHRA top fuel racer for years. And so he will try to revive some of that good memory and some of that good juju especially coming off what was a command performance in Chicago that we'll be talking with both Tony Pedragon and Todd Venny about. You know, in the sport of drag racing this week, it was fairly quiet. Memorial Day weekend was set aside for the major events that it always seems to be set aside for. The Indianapolis 500 was spectacular. Uh, I'm not sure if you're a crossover motorsports fan. I am. I like all different forms of racing, and the Indianapolis 500 has been appointment viewing and or listening for me since I was a kid. I've never been in person, which is something I should probably rectify one of these years, but whether it's listening on the radio or, of course, watching on television, um, I always love the Indy 500. And I do follow the IndyCar series uh, with some regularity as well. Some great storylines and competition happening there. It was that triple header day of racing. I woke up in the morning, was doing yard work, listening to the Formula One race from Monaco. Transitioned in the afternoon to watch the Indy 500. And then did not get to watch the Coke 600 until Monday night because of all the rain they had down in Charlotte. Pushed that race an entire day backward. But... Now that those three events are out of the way, it's time to go back drag racing, and what better place to do it than Epping, New Hampshire? Kind of a polar opposite place from where we just were in Chicago, that massive gladiator stadium giving way to a very retro, cool, old-school drag strip. Opened in 1966 on September 11th is New England Dragway. Uh, very first day of competition, the top eliminator purse was 250 bucks if you won top fuel or, well, effectively had the fastest car on the property. And over the years, the track has um, meant a lot to so many people in this region. It is the last of the true quarter-mile drag strips in the New England region. Lebanon Valley Dragway in New York, just a bit west of New England proper, is another great NHRA track and is a quarter-mile facility. But in terms of the you know typical New England states of you know Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire, and uh, Maine, this is the last quarter-mile drag strip. Now there is Oxford Plains Dragway in Maine. That's an eighth-mile track. There's a Winterport drag strip in Maine, also an eighth-mile facility. So there is drag racing in the region, but in terms of a national event, this is as good as it gets. And this one draws fans from Canada, which we'll talk about, draws fans from really all over the New England states. And it's going to be uh, it's gonna be cool as we've, we're going to address this situation as well. Car counts looking like 15 funny cars and hopefully 14 dragsters. I think we got 13 on the sheet now, but we may... Uh, if my information is correct, sneak one more into the list before we get things started with qualifying on Friday. We have an interesting format for our shows this weekend, multiple qualifying shows, as you've come to expect. And then on Sunday, we have a split broadcast for the first time, I think, really since the U.S. Nationals last year. 
Early in the day, you're going to watch what is effectively going to be live coverage of the first round. Then you'll come back at 7 p.m. Eastern in the evening to watch the rest of the race and find out who actually wins. So it's going to be great. We have Top Fuel, Nitro Funny Car, and Pro Modified as the feature classes at this race. Pro Stock Motorcycle and Pro Stock Car will rejoin us down the road, but it is going to be the Top Fuel, Funny Car, and Pro Modified classes you'll see covered on our NHRA on Fox broadcast on on. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday on FS1. So that's a brief primer about what's going to be happening here. And rather than continue to blather on, I think I'm just going to welcome our guests in here, Tony Pedragon and Todd Venny. We'll be up next when we come back right here at the NHRA Insider Podcast. All right, welcome back to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. I have two guests on the line right now, Tony Pedregon, the NHRA on Fox analyst I work with in the booth, and the man you don't see on the show, but you see his handiwork on the show, coming back for another appearance due to popular demand, Todd Venny, NHRA on Fox, pit producer. Todd, how are you doing this morning? Good, Brian. Tony, how's things out there in good old Brownsburg, Indiana? Well, uh, never a dull moment. I am fresh off of the Indy 500, and once again, I... You know, I went. It took me 20 minutes to get in. Miraculously, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna tell anyone my secret how to get into the Indy 500. I told you. You did. <laughs> but you know, I sat. There, I, I sat there as as I have in all the years that I've gone to the 500, and was once again reminded that this is the business of entertainment. Um, you know, I, I know as a as a former team owner, and I'm sure a lot of the team owners, you know, they live in their their bubble and. You know, it's a business for them. Racing is their business, um, but but you really can't you can't mistake the two. You can't confuse the two. People are there to be entertained, and you know, it's interesting. Is uh, you know, I was in the Snap On suite. I, I got a little time. Nick Pinchuk, the CEO of Snap On, you know, he'll he'll make his visit. He'll go through and and talk to some of the franchisees, some of the customers that won some of the contests there. You know, and he said something that. I just think it's so spot on. And I, I think it's, I think a lot of people would have the same impression. You know, when the Indy 500 starts, everything that goes into it, it's the road race the week before it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, all the fans, they kind of get in the spirit of the 500, the month of May. Yeah. Right. When I leave town, I have an English bulldog and my neighbor watches it. I come back from, you know, a couple of races ago and my dog has a checkered collar on <laughs> It's, it's the month of May. It's right. We know what happens in May. The 500 goes down. But it, and it's such a big spectacle. But, but what Nick said was that, I mean, he left. He, he, he came to the race. He was in the Pagoda. Uh, you know, of course, their, their, their car won the race. But, you know, he complimented our sport. He said, you know, there's always something going on. And, you know, he's on the starting line when he comes to our events, which is only a couple of years. But, I, I think that uh, a lot of uh, companies feel the same way. And, uh, you know, as I sat there and listened to the anthem, I thought it was great. I know a lot of people were a little bit critical of Jules. I thought anthem, she killed I it. Just, I liked it. I thought, I thought she did a great I, I job. I did. Yeah, I mean, she didn't change the words. She just put, like every uh, you know artist does, she just put a little twist on it. I thought it was one of the best anthems that I've ever heard, and I've sat through a lot racing and other sports. But uh, it, it was a great race. But, you know, I walk away thinking that, you know, I think that there is so much more potential with our sport, and there's nothing like. Uh, you know, it's funny because yesterday I went to IRP and watched Cruz make a test run. He pulled up to the starting line and match raced Josh Hart in front of all these this group from Snap On, and you know, there's nothing like it. And I, I think that's a good thing. I think this sport has a lot to offer, and uh, you know, I think I think a lot of the potential is untapped. Todd, what about you? Did you watch the race? I always watch Indy 500. I, I am an IndyCar fan, but I'm certainly a fan of the 500 and everything that goes with it. What about you? Yeah, I did watch it. Um, I, I never watch any other races all year, but I've been watching this one for, I think this was 50 years only for the last 20-some years. I live in the one place in the whole country where you cannot watch it live. That's true. Yeah, you guys yes. are in the blackout zone. So I've spent years like, you know, my wife, please don't say anything. I don't talk to anyone. And then uh, a year or two ago, through the wonders of a VPN, uh, I changed my location to <laughs> Boise, Idaho, and, and watched the hell out of that thing. It was it was fantastic. I loved what they did at the end. I'm sure a purist, just a uh, you know, right right out of the pits, one lap without even a warm up, didn't like it. But you know, who the hell wants to see that thing end on a red flag? I don't know all the rules of that thing. I just, I watch one race a year. I, I love it. 
And I was like, oh, God. Plus, I wanted that guy who won, you know, who'd been trying for yeah. so long. I wanted, to, I wanted to see him get his. You know, it's a last lap pass. It's something he can remember for his whole life. But I I don't – actually, I do know what some purists think. I have one, uh, one good friend who works in that series, and he was saying that – you know, I don't think uh, Erickson's team uh, loved the call there, but basically everybody else did. And I guarantee 300,000 people there and however many watching around the world, we wanted to see people race for it. And it was it was awesome. It was. It, 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 and, you know, for me, it's like the last, I guess, two years, really, it's come down to these kind of last couple of lap sprints off a red flag. And, yeah, I, I watched every second of it. I love the pageantry. I love the way that it's presented. And, and uh, I've never seen it in person. I have to, I have to, Tony, next year I will have to be a passenger in your clandestine way to get into the race. I will not reveal the secret. It, it could be the ultimate um, way of getting in or die trying. <laughs> so, the, so there is. You're saying there is a potential of finding out, as as uh, as one half of the expression goes. There, there is a there is a potential in this method of having to find out someday. <laughs> Look, I've got some good 500 stories over the last few years. A couple of them involved my son just trying to get into this place without tickets uh, 30 minutes before the race starts. That's a whole different show, but uh, let's let's make it a let's make it a point. I know you and I have talked yeah. about it, Brian, and maybe yeah. we got to get Steve and Pete from Fox. Maybe we just make it a group. And we got hey, it. if all of us can sneak in, we we've, we've got to put the GoPro on on one of us <laughs> just so we can document it because it would be it would be amazing. Well, let's let's continue that sneaking in theme because um, we got to talk about Clay Milliken and, and his win in Chicago. And by no means did they sneak in a victory, but in a way they did. If we look at the overall season and, and Todd, I want to start with you because, you know, this is a car that hadn't made it out of the first round at a single event. And and next thing we know, the car is winning the race and it's winning the race in a good fashion. It wasn't like there was a bunch of weird series of events. They had a solid race car. Clay drove it very well and they won. But to go from, effectively zero to 100 miles an hour in, in almost no time flat. This was just an enormous moment for that team. Well, it, it's, that's true, but it, it really, if you think about it, it wasn't even just that he, you know, hadn't won a round. He wasn't in going into the last shot, yeah. right? You know, like a lot of people, I think everybody likes to see Clay do well. And it's been exactly five years since he won. And so he, he gets in the show. It was fantastic to see all those cars where there actually is bumping. I mean, that's... Yes. When you know when last shot qualifying, when there's actually something at stake, it, it's you know it's like things worse for so many years in the past. And it's great to see to see that happen again. And then he just every single run made it down the track, which he, they hadn't been doing. And he also has this weird thing of seems like he's in the first pair of the first round. Yes, and Langdon's always in the first pair of the first round. Antron is a lot of times, which just means you're qualifying right in the middle of the pack, but. You know, Langdon, that's a tough draw. That's a tough guy to get first round, and he, he unloads like a 73 or 74 or something and then stays in the 70s, and then as they get to the final when maybe conditions just aren't going to allow that, at 80 flat, I think Hart also ran at 80 flat. They both had good lights, and for once in his life, yeah, you know, it goes Clay's way. I think he's lost more than 80% of his finals over his career, and he's lost a lot of – close ones you know a lot of those especially early early in his career i think he was probably glad to be in the final but you know clay milliken has never been a lucky guy no in in any three competition and as they're screaming down there was one of those that's so close while you're watching that you know i kind of look away from the monitor just look down at at uh compuser to see how close it is and whatever the hell it was it was just thousand, about a hundredth, and it was it was nice to see one goes uh, Clay's way for once. That really was, and you know, Tony, when we talk about like football quarterbacks, we have the guys that are like the gunslingers, and we have like the the managers, right? They they they're game managers, and these are guys that win a lot of games, but they don't necessarily do it in the flash and dash way. Do you feel like Jim O was a great game manager last Sunday? We look at this car that went 73 in the first round, and they kind of just stair-stepped it through the mid to high 70s, running an 80 in the final. Did they do the best job of managing the conditions, or did they simply have you know the best setup that anybody could have had? Well, they had both. They had everything. They had they had the management uh, on what was a, an increasing you know racetrack from the second round, first round to second round. Through the course of the day, uh, but they had performance, you know, so they had, they pretty much did it all. And, you know, when they, all those, you go back and, and, you know, their history, when Rick Ware came into this uh, ownership role, 
and you know kind of change the dynamic of the team and you know of course better parts are a better thing yeah. and you know they but the one thing that this this team has had is they've had the performance they just it's all those tire smokers the close races they've lost the you know they bang the blower a couple of times you know it just they that is a learning process and you know the one the one thing that, and we've we've talked we talked about clay uh, you know several months ago and I, I remember you asking me what, you know we kind of ran through who we know the the contenders are going to be and you know my critique on clay or my i shouldn't even say concern because clay has the ability to get off the starting line he's got very good car control he's he's one of the more experienced drivers um but you know the concern was can he compete with you know with the uh, justin ashley's austin Pock, yeah. you know doug and antron and you know some of these guys that are just consistently good off the starting line and have car control and have depth and teams that can get the job done. But what Clay did there, when I see that kind of performance and everything come together, you know, the Falcon has landed. That that means that he can do it any given Sunday. He's It's not just a flash in the pan. We've seen, you know, some racers hold a trophy at the end of the race, and we look at their performance and say, well, that's not likely going to happen again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because how many – you're not going to get away with in one or two rounds having – you know, a triple-digit reaction yeah. time. It's just not going to happen. But that wasn't the case with Kay, with the case with Clay. And I think the signal that he sends to his competition is that there is another rooster in the hen house. This, this is a good team. They have depth. They have now kind of gelled together. They have a driver that can get it done. They have a tuner that is, seems to have found his sweet spot because we know the car can run. And, you know, that you get a well-rounded team like that, and when they pull in the gate on Sunday, they start believing. And when you get a team and a driver and a crew chief that believe that they can go quick when it's time to go quick, but more importantly, go quick and consistent when the conditions start to warm up, which is what we're going to see more of yeah. uh, in these, you know, these next, you know, dozen races, um, that's a that's a – a lethal thing for a team. Todd, that like belief factor that Tony mentioned, and, and you know, you've been on teams both as a driver and as a guy wrenching on the car, that belief factor or that final understanding that, yes, we can do this, because they're, they're young people on Clay's team that had never won a race before. They've been on that team for several years and had not won. Some of his more experienced crew members have been there since the days when uh, the when the team was you know under different ownership and leadership. But these kids that finally get their first win after years of trying, what is the change in that kind of swagger, if you will, or even belief on a on a Sunday morning like Tony's talking about? Well, I think it's just in the back of your mind. You know, I, I didn't win as a crew crew guy. I worked for uh, one year. We got to one final. Uh, we lost. Uh, it was uh, 08 at Maple Grove. Jack Beckman uh, uh, beat us. Collie was a driver. Mike Ashley was the driver uh, for most of the year, and then uh, Frank took over after uh, Scott Coletta's accident to the finals at Maple Grove. And I remember uh, as we're going up there, just for me personally, who hadn't done it very much, and and just my whole thought was, God, if you know if anything goes wrong, please don't let it be something I did. <laughs> you know, to be honest, you know, I wasn't very experienced. I was the oldest guy there uh, by uh, probably about eight or nine years. And, um, but just when you go rounds, it, it was incredible. So we went four rounds. We never yeah. really did that before. We qualified number one, like, like four times in 11 races, but we, that was Aaron Brooks's first year ever as a crew chief. And, uh, so we got to the final and just each round, it's the fact that they can even get these things together. I, I was a blower guy and, uh, yeah, I, I just remember being petrified that I would, would, and I, and I didn't, I mean, I'm sure I didn't do anything perfect, but the whole thing was you know, please, God, don't, don't let me cost this one. <laughs> and so, so for me, it, w- it wouldn't be race winning as a, as a crew guy. It would just be winning rounds. Yeah. And you just, and you realize it's, it's, it, I can't even imagine 15 years later, how much harder it even is, but it was, it was amazing as a driver. Uh, you know, I was around for a long, long time before I ever won uh, anything. And uh, I did feel just, I could only say what, what it was like for me. I did feel different. Yeah, you know, it's like, I can do this. And the nice thing was, uh, it was the last race of the year, so just the whole off season, you know, uh, it, it's a it's a feeling of I don't know if I'm ever going to do it again, but I, you know, you at least you know you can. 
Tony, as much as Clay Milliken's win may look kind of like an ambush, like he came out of nowhere and, 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 you know, decapitated everybody, we look at Josh Hart's season so far, and this is a guy who's building into something. First three races, doesn't get out of the first round. Yes, he wins the call-out race in Gainesville, and it looks like he's on the way, and then he goes out first round the first three races. Then the next two races, semifinal, semifinal, then we get to Chicago, it's a runner-up. That to me is the he he is on right now the best trend of performance of anybody in top fuel in terms of this build into what appears to be a car that now week in and week out should be contending. Yeah, you know, Josh, and I think it's mostly because of his personality. I mean, he's just low keyed. Uh, he's going to carry himself the way he's going to carry himself, and uh, you know, I think that he, you know, he kind of held his own when a couple of drivers were not necessarily taking shots, but yeah. you know, they were just being critical and. You know, I, I think that um, he handled it. However, yeah. he did handle it. But you know, Josh Hart is just—he's uh, the—he's the stone in your shoe that is not going away. Yeah. You think you get it out, but it's—you take a few more steps, and it's still there. Um, but I just think they have a solid team. You know, Josh is very—he's—he's uh, pretty consistent. Um, you know, I think he was—he was, he was kind of hit and miss early in the season. I, you know, they won the uh, the the, the call out. Yep. And I think the expectations became high, but you know, I think the trade-off. I think it's going to be like that all year. I think it's going to be uh, Josh Hart. You know, Clay Milliken was always a dangerous draw, even though they weren't really, you know, getting by that first round. But never, I as an opponent, I don't think any driver feels real good. I mean, and whether they tell you or not, you go to bed thinking that's a good draw. I, I like, yeah. I like my my ladder. Um, but not necessarily when you see Clay. And, you know, I think the staples are still going to be there and Antron and Austin Proc and Justin Ashley. And I think we're starting to see what we what we really hyped up. I think we're going to see the, the top 10 cars that are going to be capable of winning. And, you know, to this point, we've only seen a handful. But, you know, um, one of the other questions is, you know, we heard about the merger between Schumacher and yes. and uh, yes. and Ashley and uh, you had a pretty interesting theory, Brian. That yeah. Um, well, I, you it, know, I, I I'll, I'll let you share that. Yeah. Well, I and this is exactly where I wanted to go next. So you read my mind on that one. So yeah. So there's an announcement made uh, at Chicago that there is this joining of forces to form um, Ashley uh, Maynard Racing. So now we have Wilkerson Maynard Racing. We have JCM Racing, and now we have this Ashley Maynard Racing team. Immediately following that race, which Tony Schumacher got beat in the first round, they go straight from Chicago right to Indy and immediately go testing and, by all accounts, had a very successful test session. The car ran better than it's run all season long. So, yeah, my my tiny squirrel-sized brain uh, thinks that maybe this merger, which was announced in this kind of word salad. I mean, if you look at that press release, and I, I find myself, I think I'm a legitimately kind of literate guy, and I read that thing in six different directions and backwards, and I still don't really know exactly what it was telling me, but what my brain is telling me is that they invested in a tune-up, and that tune-up, I believe, is what they tested on Monday at uh, or Tuesday at Indy, and it certainly seems to have paid off. Is my conspiracy theory totally out to lunch here? No, no, I don't think so. And I think the question that that raises, will we see Tony Schumacher enter into that conversation? Because we know we're waiting for Leah, you know, to get the kind of consistency that Clay, that that team had, Um, you know, even a a few other teams. When's when's Steve going to rebound? What about uh, what about Doug? Uh, You know, Lang has been close. But is it now going to be Tony? I think Tony can. He can go toe to toe with the best of them. But, you know, there's a team that needed help. You know, and and I if if you really go back in the history, you look at the car's performance. Hey, Mike Neff, I mean, he was a funny car. He's a funny car tuner. And and I know that there are very few that can go both ways. They they uh, but you know, for the most part, you run a top fuel car differently, yeah. <clears throat> more aggressively than you run a funny car. When you try to tune a funny car like you tune a top fuel car, you're going to see a lot of tire smoke. It's just, you know, it's the nature, it's the physics, and it's the, the mentality and, and the way that a tuner thinks. Um, you know, so I think Naf, while you, you, you give him enough time, he'll figure it out. But, you know, time is something you really don't have a lot of, not yeah. with today's competition. So I think I think that's going to be interesting. And I, I think, I always think, Brian, it's more than a coincidence that, that we see a pattern, we read into what we do. And I know everything 
is 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 top secret. You know, we ask, we don't, we know we don't get the straight answer, and that's okay because you know, as as your host, I do analysis. We have to respect the relationship sure. between ourselves and and the teams, the crew chiefs in particular. But you know, we we read into things, we assess what we're reading, what we're seeing, and sometimes we hit on things. And this, I think, is one of those things that. I, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe you hit on. Todd, what do you think? I mean, they're, they're, as Tony said, there are very few coincidences in the sport as as outwardly as they may sometimes seem. But this seems, and again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Ultimately, I think it's a great thing if it if it puts Schumacher back in a car that is going to be an, a week in and week out competitive. That's great for all of us. But do you think what I'm thinking here, or am I am I out to lunch? Well, I don't know the backstory on any of that. I, I just, it's interesting that. You know, Schumacher holds uh, the records for championships and wins and everything, and he's great under pressure. But it just shows, you know, the importance of the crew chief in drag racing. Uh, I mean, more, more than the driver. Um, you know, drivers, uh, crew chiefs get paid lots and lots of money, and lots and lots of drivers pay to drive. And this is why, you know, Schumacher, there's about 12 cars that have been to all the races this year. Yeah, he's twelve. He's twelve. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, Mike have to be my crew chief any day if I was a top field racer. I, it's, oh hell yeah! It's, it's not gone great this year, but I mean, you've seen what he's done over the years. It would be great just to have. I mean, drag racing. You know, the old days it's pretty hard to beat when there was thirty cars going to national events. That's never coming back. But I think what gets lost, you know, there's five people within. Around yeah. and a half of the <laughs> right, lead, right? And does anybody really think Schumacher won't win a race this year? I think he'll win a race this year. Clay Milliken just kicked ass at Chicago. He's not even in the top ten. Yeah. Even winning the last four rounds, that's four round wins for the year. So it's a tough deal. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Schumacher won three races from now. And look to me, the the the, the number that when I was kind of going back and looking at the season numbers and and you know kind of formulating this conspiracy theory in my brain, I look at where what did Schumacher qualify at. So this is this is pretty pretty spectacular, I guess, in terms of consistency. Now the qualifying positions are not good, but. Gainesville, the car qualifies 377.4. Phoenix, the car qualifies 376.2. Pomona, the car qualifies 376.2. Vegas, the car qualifies 376.3. Charlotte, the car qualifies 374.1. Chicago, the car qualifies 379.3. The problem is you got a mid to high 370s car and what is should be a high 60s, low 70s world, right? I mean, that's really the issue here, Tony. It's not necessarily anything that's happening in terms of the team being able to do the work it's just the car is simply not fast enough no no that's the early bird flight out on sunday morning is what that amounts to and you know todd just one comment and i, and I think you know this is a pretty complex issue i'm not going to disagree with you because uh you know the tuners are and, and always have been a pretty important part but as as the competition continues to increase and i and i think there's you can go back to the when the economics and we see other co- uh, companies invest in this sport we see the rating increase i think that would place a higher demand on talent and and maybe you know i don't i don't know that we're there but there is a difference between a good tuner and, and, a, and a tuner that doesn't have as much ability but by the time you get to the second round in the semifinals you want a driver with talent because that's going to make the difference between losing and winning a race consistently once in a while guy might get lucky but there's there's no question that um that talent wins over you know they always say that horsepower does in this game well that is true but when you get to this caliber of competition that we're seeing today the driver does matter so i'm always going to defend the driver i know there are even a few team owners um that that have have had that kind of logic and way of thinking, hey, we can just get anybody in here. Yeah, you can get anybody in there, but you're going to be going home early. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it is. And, and I think the numbers can really back that up. So, you know, again, hey, talent is good, but you have to have the car. And, um, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about the 500. They have their problems, too, just like we do. There was, I think it was Graham Rahal. All the cars fired up. Yeah. The crowd was into it, and it was one car that just didn't start. I think it was a battery issue. It so was. We're, we're, we're not alone when some of these teams go up and they, their car can't start. 
So one last question. This one's kind of out of left field. I don't want to throw out there before we move over to the funny car category. You know, there was a guy back at several months, well, let's call him almost probably almost 20 years ago now, who was this phenomenal pro stock motorcycle rider that was plucked from the pro stock motorcycle category and stuck into a top fuel car who has since gone on to be one of the great top fuel racers of all time. His name's Antron Brown. You mentioned talent, Tony, and, and this was something I started thinking about. And Gage Herrera is a guy that races cars when he's not on a motorcycle. He'll go out and run the, the, the spring fling races. He'll go out and run the big money stuff. Is this one of those guys that I'm not saying this season, maybe not even next season, but is this one of those guys that somebody out there has already kind of put a little bit of a flyer on and said, if this guy keeps it up, I need him for me. And that would be in a, in a nitro car. Well, I, yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that uh, when Todd was talking about, you know, the, the family history uh, whether it's Gage or Chase, uh, you know, and I don't think they should really limit themselves, you know, to to what they're doing. Uh, you know, I think Antron was a good example. Now, I think there are some that can make that transition uh, because of their talent, but mostly because of the way that they approach things, the way they they see things, and what they aspire to do. Uh, and I I think there are some that kind of you know might be a little more limited. Might they might be good on a bike? They might be good in a pro stock car and you know, maybe they're too fixed on, on what they were doing. So I, I don't know that everyone has that kind of talent, but I, I've always felt this way. I've always thought that, you know, you look at a, a driver like, like force and, and some of the, some of the most winning drivers didn't necessarily have the best cars. I mean, you could, you could say what you want about John, but I was around him for a lot of years. Uh, he dominated for a, a good amount of that time, but you know, there were a lot of races that he won because uh, of his ability, of his talent. Yeah. So, you know, we see some new talent coming into some of these other categories, and, you know, I think the sky's the limit. You know, I think they should look at other opportunities. I've always felt that there are some drivers, regardless of what they were doing, they would be very, very good at it. I felt that way about Force. I felt that way about Austin Coyle. If he was tuning a, an Indy car, an F1 car, or a NASCAR, that car was going to win because of that individual and the commitment combined with the talent and the knowledge and everything else that they possess. So, you know, I think that some of these writers, uh, you know, they're, they show themselves where, well, they, they speak well, they, um, you know, they're, they're clean cut and Hey, those are the kind of, that's the kind of talent that I think that some teams, when this sport continues to grow and we see other sponsors come in that are, not necessarily automotive related. Um, and, you know, and that's something that we're all working for. So hopefully that'll happen. And that opens up opportunity for some of the younger talent. Todd, what do you think? Because, I mean, to me, this guy gives off the, the Pat Austin vibes. He gives off the Antron vibes. He gives off the that that just kind of energy that says, put me in a, put me in a hay wagon and I'm probably going to beat you. You know, I never really thought of that, Brian, but why the hell not? I mean, the guy literally still hasn't lost this year. Um <laughs> Why couldn't he do it? I never would have thought that Antron, I mean, who even thinks of that? I believe Lee Beard is the one. Yeah. Who, I think people really know that. I think that was Beard who saw that and gave him a shot right there at the end of uh, David Powers Racing. But why couldn't uh, Herrera do it? Why could, do you really think Sean Bellamere or Shane Westerfield or Joey Severance or Luke Bagaki or Austin Williams. Or oh, absolutely. Sportsman driver. Why couldn't they do it? They just never. Yeah. Who's to say that the 16 drivers in the field at, at Chicago and Top Fuel are the 16 best? They're the right. 16 best of the 20 who were there that right. weekend. Who knows how many great drivers out there that are not going to get a shot could do it. And then, you know, maybe a few will, and we'll, we'll see new, new, uh, top pros from sports drivers would be awesome to see so let's transition and, and, and that, go, go for it not to interrupt you but yeah. that might be the conversation because really the, the talent is out there but I, and i don't think it's just like in any other sport motorsports in particular maybe not maybe not uh you know in, in nfl or nba because it, talent i mean you can you can do a few things wrong if you've got talent uh, they, they seem to be a little more lenient in some areas but I think it's a combination of talent, charisma, you know, personality. So whether it was Lee or whoever saw that in Antron, there was some marketability there. There was yeah. uh, marketability. There was a personality that really stuck out. And, you know, there just so happened to be talent. So I, I think 
I think there's plenty of it there. But, you know, I, I, again, I think that uh, Gage, he presents himself well. And, you know, I think anytime you have somebody that has that kind of talent, um, he starts to get the attention you know, of, of people. So let's transition into, into funny car because Zapping will be a nitro funny car, top fuel featured race. We don't have pro stock or pro stock bike. And, you know, as, as feel good a story as Clay Milliken was, I, you know, um, Tim Wilkerson's win rivals, even Clay's, even Clay's victory. You know, Tony, I want to talk about the first part of this, which is he wins the race in the Skag car with the CEO of Skag there with 500 employees there as a team owner and a driver who's done this for his whole life. What is the added value in that of delivering on the spot for the guy cutting the checks? Well, that is a good day. That is, that's as good as it gets right there. Uh, that is the perfect ending. And I think even the drama and the performance in qualifying. Uh, I think that, you know, we saw the reaction from all those orange shirts. So, you know, Tim had a good presence there. And, you know, I think I, I missed a little because I I would have predicted either Cruz or Tasca or even Force. I, I mean, you look at how good his car's running. I thought when he got by Robert in the second round, I thought this is you know this is a John Force kind of day. And then there was Caps just winning those close races, and you know their car just wasn't missing. And I really felt that that he could outperform. Um, Wilkerson on a couple of different fronts, and he did. Um, but, you know, I think uh, a couple of years from now, nobody's really going to remember so much that, you know, Caps was in the final. They're just going to remember that Tim Wilkerson was the winner of that race. And, and you know, how it happened, even though Caps had a nice hole shot, uh, and it was parts failure. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't any human error that at times when we see these things happen on the racetrack, it could be mechanical, it could be some mistake that somebody made. And, and this, in this case, it was, it was parts failure. It was in the body that allowed, you know, the cable to slip and, and just fall out. So, you know, there was the race right there. I think, uh, I think Caps was on his way to victory, but, um, you know, the fact that, that, you know, Tim assembled, uh, not, not a new team, but, you know, just, just had this different look and with everyone there on the starting line and that kind of volume, uh, it, it really, it, it couldn't end any better. And the fact that he beat Caps and there was just all that drama and how it happened, uh, it leaves it leaves anyone in upper management that was there, any of those customers, it, it leaves them feeling good. And Brian, you and I have talked about this. And, and I think, you know, of course, Bob Hill, you know, his grandfather wrote the book and maybe coined the phrase, you know, you win on Sunday, sell on Monday. Yes. And, and I think... I think that the way that some of these companies are doing business is what that phrase intended to be. Yes. It wasn't automatic. I mean, it, people get left with a good impression. If you win with a Ford, yeah, that's gonna that, that's that's gonna maybe make people wonder. But it's not automatic. But what is automatic is when you can give your customers that kind of experience yeah. and and bring them backstage and you win. It, it, I, I've always thought this that. You know the 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 sponsors and their customers. When their customers feel like they're doing business with their friend and have that kind of experience, <clears throat> that's like going fishing and catching a you know six hundred pound tuna. <laughs> so you know it's it's such a good experience, and and I think because of the bonding and the business that takes place after that is is unmatched, and that's something that this sport and Tim Wilkerson. And what NHRA provides uh, has given the sponsor-customer relationship, you know, that experience. You know, I actually spent some time with Randy, who's the CEO of Skag, on Thursday night at the famous Al Steakhouse in Joliet, which is a must-stop venue for anybody whoever's going out to Route 66 Raceway. But we were talking about stuff, and the one thing that, that was great is he told me, he said, I, I have seen immediate returns on what we're doing out here. And to your point, Tony, it isn't necessarily that, you know, people run up to him and show him, you know, their new skag tattoo. But what it is, is he said, you know, he brings the dealers and stuff out and and those are his primary guests and his customers. And those dealers then go back and these are dealers that sell all different brands of equipment. Well, he said he'll he'll bring dealers out to the race. They have this wonderful experience. And then like within three or four weeks. They're ordering more product than they had in months because all of a sudden they're showing their customers the Skag mower before they show them the Brand X or Toro or whatever. And so to your point, 
this win on Sunday, sell on Monday thing isn't necessarily Joe Consumer running in and buying a new Mustang, but it is that after effect, that ripple effect that does cause business to move. And and this dude is all in. I mean, the, the Skag, Skag company is everywhere. We see him on Erica's car now. They have loads of people out there. And, and this, uh, as, as if the hook wasn't deep enough for Randy, it, it's got even deeper. You know, Todd, I want to transition this, this conversation about Wilkerson to the more racer-centric level in that I spoke to three or four funny car racers over the course of the last week or so, and all of them were super frustrated. They were they were not blown away by Tim Wilkerson winning the race. They were frustrated with themselves for them losing the race. And can you speak to that a little bit? It wasn't they're not looking at Tim going, Oh man, he just went out there and booted us all off the drag strip. They're kind of looking at themselves saying, Why didn't we race the race like that? Why didn't we do the things Tim did? And is that more frustrating as a racer to kind of have this lingering feeling that damn it, we could have and should have won the event versus we had nothing for that guy on Sunday? Well, I never, I can't say that I ever was like, oh, I, I just have too much power. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I've never had uh, that problem. Um, for Wilkerson, though, I don't, you know, tuning a nitro car, it's got to be hard for these guys who know that they can go 380s to face the facts that this is a four flat track. Yeah. Because I think Tim ran like a 98, 99, right around four flat. Yes. All day. Although, although in the final, I mean, Caps, Caps had him. Tim ran a 96, which I think was his best of the race, but then Caps got him on the starting line there. And yes. it looked like he had it. So, so in the final, maybe that strategy didn't work. And Tim got a lucky brick that time. But like Clay, Tim has not had good luck in final rounds. He's won plenty, but right. he's not. He's not been blessed with a lot of good luck um, in final rounds, but I, I think more the thing that's impressive with Tim is like, in addition to this guy is a businessman, like he has a retail business. Yes, you know he has a machine shop. Then he is a NHRA team owner, and he's a crew chief, and he drives the car. Like, imagine taking on that much responsibility, your head doesn't explode. And, and excelling at all of it. That's, I think that's why Wilkerson has a lot of respect of the people across the sport because he balances so many things. And he doesn't just do them. He does them well, and he, and he always has. One last point I want to touch on with Tim before we move on. And, and is this the biggest difference, Tony, between Top Fuel and Funny Car? And, and you know, I'm going to give you some numbers here, and I'm not taking a shot at Tim Wilkerson, but this the numbers are what they are. 106, 111. 94-101. Those are the four reaction times Tim had on Sunday on the way to victory. You can't win a top fuel race like that. You, you simply cannot. No, that's not going to happen. And I don't know that you can win too many funny car races. I mean, there's two ways you can win. Uh, you catch some breaks along the way. Uh, you get to the final. You catch you catch another break. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just that's a good race. Things fell your way. Uh, now, the performance of Tim... He was pretty dominant, you know, so I, you can't take that yeah. away from him. He raced smart. He was quick. Uh, you know, he didn't he didn't back into the, the race in terms of performance. But, um, you know, when, when Hagen doesn't slip up, um, you know, when Force doesn't smoke the tires, you know, Force had a pretty uh, 700s. Now, I think he, if I'm not mistaken, he knocked the top light out. But that's the way Force drives. So, I, I just, I wouldn't be surprised to see Tim in the final. But I just don't know that you're going to get – past the caps Tasca, height you know hagen i can go down the list jr todd you're not going to get past those guys at too many races with those kinds of reaction times and that's you know that that's just one of the things that i think in the past has held tim back so you know to your point todd you know hey the business aspect of it is you know you can respect the fact that you know the, the he's he's going to leave the track and he's going to tend to his business. But uh, I know a few drivers that, you know, have those similar responsibilities and the getaway is getting in the car. So I don't think that really uh, limits or gets in the way of how a driver performs. Um, you know, the nitro fumes in the car, the idle, it has a way of getting your adrenaline going and, and getting your attention. And, you know, you're either quick or you're not. And, you know, I think there are times that Tim could be good. Uh, he had a good race, and I think what this is going to do for him is it is going to make him better. I think that 
you know, you, you give them a little taste yeah. and it, it'll wake up, it'll wake up the sleeping lion. I don't know that Tim is going to be as good as the top five driving car, but we have seen Tim at times be good. And, and I think, I think the, the key for them is to be good at the right times, but they, they have the performance and they, they let that know. One of the things I think is interesting on the, on Ron Cap's side of it, no, they didn't get the, the, the Wally to end the Sunday, but we look at his grouping of runs, four flat, 398, 398, and then the parachute comes out and runs 411. The thing was going to go, what, probably a 94, 95, maybe incrementally if uh, if the parachute doesn't come out and, and kill the run. But I look back at the other races he's runnered up at. We go back to Pomona. He runs 94, 99, 98, and then in the final against Hagen, it was a pedaling 430. But to me, this is like a little bit of an indicator. It's almost like we're able to cheat on the test a little bit, Todd, that that this is a car that is going to be dangerous in the summertime. If they're able to string together these consistent high 94-0 runs and make them, as you said, by slowing a car down that can run in the in the mid to low 80s, that is the type of car that people need to be afraid of when we get into the hot, hot weather races. Well, Caps has always been. He's always been strong there. You know, I, he doesn't want to race this year, but I think he's been to the final round Three times. Half of them. Well, yeah, four times technically because he was in the final quad of, of uh, Charlotte. Yeah. There you go. And uh, But he hasn't won. But, you know, over his career, he's won more finals than he's lost. So it's just it's just one of those things. I don't really put any importance on that. You've got Higgins, who I think he's been out first round or second round three times. Yeah. And then the other three times. He's won. He won the whole race. <laughs> And then you you look through uh, the stats. Uh, our Pete Richards from Fox he compiles all these stats, like uh, like Lewis used to do. And I, w- I was really surprised the guy who's been to the semis the most in Funny Car, Chad Green. Yeah, where the hell did that come from? I mean, you, you talk about flying under the radar. He's never been to a final. Um, he's done great on the tree, but you don't even. You don't even notice that because he hasn't been in the final. He's been in the semis two-thirds of the races this year. So who the hell knows what's going to happen? You just know with Caps when it gets hot, and then and then he, he seems to rise to the occasion in the, in the playoffs too. You know, what, whether he's won three races or no races, I, you know, it doesn't matter. He's going to be there at the end. It's going to be Height, Hagen, and Caps, you know, it's every year. Uh, and I don't see why it wouldn't be that way this year too. Tony, what do you think about that assessment regarding the future of things to come? A car that is either hit or miss, meaning win three races or go out early in Hagen, or a car that is a runner-up three times on the season, and all three of those times when he run it up, these were mid to high 390 races. Well, I think two things. I think we're getting to the time of year that teams like Caps, uh, maybe one or two other Teams are starting to find their way. Um, you know, it takes a little bit of time from the start of the year. They change things, whether they lighten the car up or change things in the clutch or the engine or the power level. There's always something. It does take a handful of races, even when they hit on it. When they hit on it, now they have to figure out how to make adjustments when the track is is going to do what it did in Chicago. It wasn't extremely hot, so we haven't seen the worst of it, but I, I think we're, we're kind of starting to see that transition you know, so for Hagen, you know, they're not quite there yet. Tasca's not quite there yet. Cruz, I think we're going to see some of those teams start to figure out how to race on hotter tracks. They already know how to go quick on the Friday evening session when it's cooler. That's always going to be very critical for the most part in the summer. That is going to be for position unless we see some cloud cover roll in on Saturday. So, so all of these things that we've been seeing for the first, you know, four or five, six races – uh, I think that Caps is right about where we expected him to be. He's just, he's going to run good. But, you know, to go back to Chad Green, there's a couple of things that are going right for that team. Um, Dan Wilkerson has, has seemed to wrap his head around how to race a car, how to, how to race in this range that, yeah. you know, that, that they seem to live in. And they're yep. comfortable with that because Chad Green is he's he's doing a, some pretty nice work on the starting line and that's not going to change anytime soon i think uh he'll he'll roll in modestly moderately occasionally they'll have a good reaction time he'll roll the car in a little bit more which is what every driver does but they pick and choose when they do it so chad green seems to, to have made a lot of improvements in his ability 
so that works in tandem with the crew chief. The crew chief is probably thinking, hey, this guy's uh, this guy's done his homework over the off season. Now I can count on him a little bit more. I don't I don't have to <clears throat> I don't have to be concerned with somebody else getting a couple of hundreds off the starting line. So I, I think that team has really come together and it just shown have shown that you know that they're gonna be a force to be reckoned with. And hey, if those guys that really haven't lived up to what they feel that they can do, um, you, you you know you better start doing it pretty soon or or this team is going to find a couple of hundreds of a second and before you know it they're going to slam the door on you so you know to this point you got to give them respect because they've been hanging in there and matt hagan of course a three-time winner in epping this is the perfect place for that team to come up and uh and and kind of put themselves back on the tracks after a pair of back-to-back first round losses should also be mentioned john force has made three straight semifinal rounds so there's one last topic i want to hit with you guys and this is this is a little bit different uh, we're going to talk a little i want to go to kind of the business slash inside baseball uh side of drag racing here we're going to talk about epping of course because we're going there this weekend new england nationals um as is usual car counts are a little thin we got 15 nitro funny cars i think we're going to end up with 14 top fuel dragsters and we were going to have 16 funny cars, and then the New Englander team had some sort of problem, a medical issue or something with one of the guys, so they are unable to attend, so we're going to be one short there. Now, I understand that Epping is far away from everything. It always has been, always will be. Back in the days of IHRA national events, we could barely get cars there to fill an eight-car field, let alone to fill 16-car fields. But, Tony, I want to start with you because here's my question. Here's what I struggle with. We hear so often from the small teams that are looking for funding, the small teams that are looking for sponsors, the small teams that are looking to do anything they possibly can to do to get attention, that we don't give them enough attention, attention, and that they don't have enough opportunity on TV and that they don't have enough eyeballs on them. And yet, those guys will show up to a race with 21 freaking top fuel cars, be the 21st car in order, and get nothing because, frankly, we can't spend a lot of time talking about the 21st car. you got to talk about the people that qualified and who's running fast. They have an opportunity, and I realize it's far away, but do you have an opportunity to not only guarantee yourself first-round money, but also guarantee yourself 10 times more coverage than you're going to get at a race when there's 20 freaking cars? So what am I missing here? What am I missing? Why would you, if you were that team owner, why would you not look at this pragmatically and say, you know what, I'm going to sit the race that I know is going to have 22 entries, and I'm going to go to the one that I'm going to be in the show on Sunday for? What am I missing? Well, my answer is going to be that they should, um, especially the teams that, you know, that, like you say, that are going to try to qualify with when there's 20 cars, 21 cars, that's that's a tough nut to crack. Um, but, you know, you're going to get, depending on who you ask, you're going to get multiple questions. And, and here's, here's two of them that you're going to get. You're going to get one from a team owner that, you know, that doesn't have sponsorship. They're going to say, look, we need more of a purse. To, to offset the cost. And then you have the flip side, you have the teams that have sponsorship. They're going to say, well, you got to get sponsorship. And if you can't, then you shouldn't be racing, which I totally disagree with because yeah. a they're in a position that they have sponsorship and, or they have pretty deep pockets. So I, I just think that that, that kind of uh, response, that kind of uh, logic is, is out of place. But you know, here again, I'm always going to go to, to the fact that, you know, this, the sport is still trying to figure certain things out. Um, I think that the purse is a legitimate uh, argument. Sure. I think that some of the teams that don't have the funding that don't have the corporate sponsorship, like some are fortunate to have, um, I think that would get them there, you know? So you look at a smaller venue and of course the tracks are going to pay the purse. That's hard to do when you, when you don't have, when you can only, facilitate what 15,000 people I'm sure it's going sure. to be packed it's going to be wall to wall um but you know I think we have to uh, you know I don't want to say give that race time because it's had plenty of time to grow and I know the questions are why can't they do this why can't they do that why it's 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 a financial uh, issue and and there I'm sure that there are reasons internally with that facility I I I do realize that they have made some upgrades, um, but you know it's just it's just one of those markets that we'd much rather have uh, a bigger market. I know that Kansas is you know there's some things floating around that uh, there may be a facility closer to the Kansas market, which I think would be great for this sport. But you know Epping, it is what it is, and 
you know, I think that's a, that's a tough decision. We'd like to see the full fields. Uh, we feel that some of the racers, racers should venture off and, and, you know, be, uh, what would they call that? Be the bigger fish in the smaller yeah. pond. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's it. I think that you ask, uh, the sanctioning body, you ask a driver or an owner or, you know, whoever's responsible for getting the car there, you ask the fan, I think you're going to get three or four different answers. I mean, Todd, as a, as a storyteller, and listen, I know it's easy for me to spend other people's money. It's, it's one of the most fun things you can do is spend other people's money. But as a storyteller, as a producer of our show, like this would be the perfect place for some of these underdog small teams to be at because we have the time to talk about them. We have the ability to talk about them, and they have a chance to showcase themselves better than they would anywhere else. Raise a good point. I think for a team owner, it's just the expense in getting there. I, you know, I happen to live in Indy, right where a lot of these teams are. I've, I have flown to Epping uh, many times, and I've driven there. It's a thousand and three miles. You know, you're yeah, you're already going through Ohio. You're in Pennsylvania. You're in New York, and then you're like, God, New York is really big. You know, and you're still driving. You're like, I've gone seven hundred miles of this. Maple Grove or English Town, I'd be there now, and you've got hundreds more miles to go. I think that, you know, and that costs a lot of money, but I never really thought of it that way, the way you say it. You are going to get on TV. If there's 15 cars, you know, I for a guy like, uh, you know, Zizzo, it's like, you know, I mean, he, he made it to the semis running in his backyard against some of the toughest uh, fields of the year. You know, it would... Uh, yeah. By the way, that's not my dog. No, that's mine. Um, but no, and, and I, I wouldn't even count, I wouldn't even put Zizzo in this category. I, I, I place him in kind of his own, like, zone. You know, I, I think because those guys have, have, have defined what they're going to do. They have the Rustoleum sponsorship. They have a plan. They have a deal with them until, like, 2025. I'm talking about, you know, and again, I'm not calling people out here. I'm just throwing names into the, into the pile here. But I'm talking about the Doug Foley's. I'm talking about the Christas. I'm talking about the Lex Junes. And, yes, I understand it is whatever it is it's it's 75 percent longer a drive to go from to go from uh indianapolis to epping as it is to go from indianapolis to bristol where we will have what appears to be at least 20 cars in both of these classes but at the same time if i'm getting twice as much qualifying money or first round money which is basically what it is and i have the additional benefit of guaranteeing myself tv time which again doesn't immediately put money in your pocket but can down downstream it just strikes me as a really strange thing that people get so hung up on how much I'm going to spend on diesel fuel versus what is my investment in going forward. Is this an investment I'm willing to make to actually move my program ahead? That's that's the one thing that, that kind of confuses me. If not confuses me, frustrates me. Well, I can tell you that if I spoke dog, that dog has a very strong opinion. And that dog <laughs> probably has the answers that we don't. But it does seem to come down to economics on both yeah. sides. No, it absolutely does. And and that being said, um, you know, it's a really dedicated fan base up here, and, and we're going to have a chance, Todd, to, to spend more time with the Pro Mod category this weekend because effectively it is Top Fuel, Funny Car, and Pro Mod as the featured classes, and I think they're going to play a little bit larger role in our broadcast. Obviously, we brought them on this year into the main broadcast, which has been great, but I think we're going to see even more of them this weekend, and those guys are embracing this idea. Like those guys specifically chose Epping because they knew that there was an opportunity to get this extra time. So to me, they made the decision that I think other people should be making. Well, they've been very proactive uh, in general this year, and they've gotten a lot of uh, a lot of exposure. And then the car, you know, you saw the final round just there in Chicago, super close. Yeah. Um, y- you know, when when uh, Thorne went out in that great race, there's a lot going on in Pro Mod. I mean, it's insane to me that you've got an alcohol funny car motor or even more powerful in a pro stalker and then some lunatic opens a door (laughs) and his ass is four inches off the ground and he, you know, that's, that's crazy. Those things, they're awesome. I've always, I've always liked Promod. I can't imagine what it would be like to drive one. 
Yeah, and I like the fact they're going to be put in front of a crowd that's really going to be appreciative of them this weekend. The New England fans are, are pretty jacked up to have the pro-modified cars here. They've been asking for them for years, and um, the fact that the, the pro-mod group decided because of this opportunity to have basically a, a, a big, almost an equal footing with Funny Car and Top Fuel, they thought this would be a good place for them. And, and listen, those guys are farther away than all the fuel teams are. If you think Indiana's far away, look at where some of these freaking guys are coming from. I mean, it's, it's, it's freaking nuts. Weather looks like it's going to be good, and uh, you know I think it's going to be it's going to be again. You know these this race in particular, obviously it's close to my heart because of where we have it. But I just I look at Epping and I think, man, we're not that far from Montreal. We're not that far from Toronto. It's like we need to go back to Canada, and that's the last opinion I want from either of you guys. I'm very staunchly of the opinion that we need to go back and race in Canada. We get a lot of great French-Canadian fans at Epping, but there's loads of them up there in the Toronto area, uh, in the Montreal area, and other places in that country that want us back badly. And Todd, I want you to go first on this one because I know you've been to many of those Canadian races over the years. I've only ever been to one. Uh, oh, really? Uh, was, yeah, yeah. It was uh, Montreal. Um, I, I always, you know, I it was a little national dragster reader when i was a little guy and i that incredible tower with a big scenario sign yeah and i always wanted to go there and um and i went uh when we kind of my family moved back to ohio and we went and uh my dad won and he ran the quickest run ever 673 and it's first time i saw him win a national event it was great and it seemed like manzo would always do great up there and perdome did great up there. Have you ever looked up his yes. record? I had no idea you were going to ask this about Montreal, but Bordeaux, he went like six or seven times. It was, and then he had his famous crash there with his dragster, but it was a bummer when it was about 92, somewhere in there, I think, was the last time they, they went there. And I'd love to go back there or anywhere if, if Cayuga was a national event track or, or some of those other IHRA facilities up there. You know, I, why not make the sport more international? I'd love it. Yeah, what about you, Tony? Well, I've never run a national event in Canada. That was a little before my time, but I can tell you this. I've matched raced in Canada a few different locations several times, and I can tell you that the fan base is there. And they don't like it. They love it. So I, I've always felt that, you know, this sport will take another leap forward when we can make it an international sport. Um, you know, Canada, Mexico, please don't knock Mexico and the issues that they have there because we have them here in this country as well. There are some good locations that I think, uh, you know, would make a lot of sense. Uh, Canada first, because like you said, it's right across the border. Uh, And one of these days, and I I don't know if it's in the near future, but I do know that one of these days we will get there. And if it starts in Canada and works its way to Mexico and then overseas – then so be it. But I think that's, I think when we see that take place in this sport, uh, that needle goes way up. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's uh, they're, 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 they're rabid for it up there. And we used to have uh, almost a Northern swing with IHRA back in the day where we kind of work our way East to West up there. And it was like, it was, we felt like rock stars, you know, we really did. And, and everybody was, everybody was super happy to have us. So hopefully uh, we get back, up to the great white north at some point soon fellas thank you as always for taking the time to chat today touching on some really cool stuff and uh, just really interested in looking to see how this weekend shakes out it's it's one of those you know it sounds like i'm being a pollyanna but i'm not but it's like you look at the, the cars we have coming in top fuel uh it's basically an all-star race if you want to put it in that respect because you got 13 on the sheet now i think we're going to end up with 14 but of those 13 they're your points leaders and you got dan mercier's car which Realize he didn't make the first round in Charlotte, but that's a 370s car that can that can stand in the ring with these people as well. So, Tony and Todd, thank you as always, and I look forward to seeing you this weekend and uh, slinging some lobster and chowder with you. Hey, Brian, let me close the show like this, if I may. Alexis, JR, Tasca, Cruiser, John Force, who is the next winner in Funny Car? Force. Three straight semis. Huh? I'm, saying, I'm saying Force. Cruise. All right. Hey, guys, we're going to be up in New England. I'm going to go with the home. It is, is it Alexis? Because uh, that's close to home for her. But I, I think uh, I think Task is knocking on the door, and uh, I think it's going to be a good one. Uh, maybe one in top fuel. Who's going to win first, Steve Torrance or Brittany this year? Torrance. I'll go, I'll go with that. I'll go with Torrance also. Todd, that's all yeah, I got. I Brian, it was fun. 
gentlemen, thank you very much, and I will see you this weekend. <laughs> Bye, guys. Yeah, Don't go anywhere. I'll be back with some final thoughts on the upcoming NHRA New England Nationals right after this. And we are back to close out this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. What a great conversation with Tony and Todd, two guys that bring unique perspective from inside the world of NHRA Camping World Series Drag Racing. It is going to be a great weekend in Epping, New Hampshire. Of course, it's one of the most old-school venues on the tour. It's one of the most intimate venues on the tour. It's a place where you can see a national event in a way you really can't see it in many other places. Going from that cavernous racetrack in Chicago to the much more intimate setting of Epping, New Hampshire is going to be a fun thing to watch and see. And for one of the first times this season, we finally go back-to-back with races. In fact, uh, it is the second time we're doing it this season. We did Phoenix and then Pomona. Now we're doing Epping and then down to Bristol, Tennessee. So a couple of really beautiful tracks, a couple of really cool places, and a couple of stops on our tour that are going to start to define our championship hopefuls. It will be Top Fuel and Funny Car featured along with NHRA Pro Modified Action this weekend along with a full slate of Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series classes in Epic. Thank you as always for tuning in to the NHRA Insider Podcast. This was a blast. Hope you had fun listening and we'll be back again after Epping to talk about going to Thunder Valley and what is easily the most beautiful drag strip on the planet there in Bristol, Tennessee. Thanks as always. I'm Brian Loans and we'll be back at you after Epping to talk about Bristol.